0: Hey, I'm Steve Bertone, host of the Forbes Interview Podcast, where we sit down with the people you see on the cover of Forbes. We're talking the world's wealthiest and most influential leaders. Like Richard Branson, Jessica Alba, Adam Carolla, Ashton Kutcher, Michael Phelps, Jason Derulo, Gaio Siri, and IEX CEO Brad Katsuyama. All this on the Forbes Interview. Download or subscribe on podcastone.com or iTunes. Podcast One and Forbes present Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari, a show where women you may never meet will become your mentors join Denise in her New York City apartment and tap into her conversations with successful women who are dropping the V-bombs. That's right, they're getting vulnerable. Now, here's your host, Denise Ristari.
1: Hi, this is Denise Ristari and welcome back to my apartment here in New York City. Today, I have a woman sitting across from me, who I'm not just saying this because she's sitting across from me. I met Pauline Brown two years ago, maybe, and I swear you get cooler by in the minute. Every time I meet with you, I just think, she just gets cooler and cooler. Maybe that's because I get to know you more, and that's Mm -hmm. what makes you cooler.
2: Well, coming from a very cool woman, uh,
1: I'm deeply uh, complimented. Well, and it's the truth. It is the truth. So Pauline is a longtime leader in the luxury goods sector, and so she was chairman of North America for LVMH representing some of the leading brands in the world like Louis Vuitton, Marc Jacobs and Donna Karan and you just know the list of all of those great brands that you see she was in charge of all of those and she currently hosts a weekly radio show on Sirius XM called Trendsetters which I have to say I love it I love it and I say that because I know it well and I was a guest on Trendsetters, and it's it's great. It was fun. It's great, and you are a great host. So this Thank will be you. a great conversation to have. So two you know, two we, hosts. Yes, the wheels are turned. Yes, and you're currently Pauline is currently on the faculty at Harvard Business School, where she created and is teaching a class on business aesthetics, and well, the business of aesthetics, right? So we have IQ, emotional intelligence. We have EQ, and now we have aesthetic. Intelligence AQ? That's AQ. So, so, so I want to hear about it. right. I want to hear more about AQ. And Pauline's also writing a book on aesthetic intelligence. So Pauline, welcome. Welcome. We're Thank going you. to have so, Thank much, you so much fun for having me. Thank you. And we have absolutely no plan other than we were just talking about your trip to Iceland and we'll get into everything that we're doing. But I want to kick it off with your mentoring moment, something that happened in your life that was that aha moment that, that wow everybody needs to know
2: this because it can change their lives. Well, um, the reality, there's no moment that comes to mind where sort of the sky parted and there was an epiphany and I became a different person or the person you know today versus the person I was. Um, when I look back and I think what the turning points were, they were um, a, a very long and subtle series of, let's say, small awakenings. And oftentimes, not even ones that I was aware of having been a before and after um, until I kind of connected dots years later. I think that the continuous thread for me, uh, and this goes back to very early childhood, and I was aware of it, but have become increasingly so, is um, is is the fact that I come from a very um, long line of strong women. And uh, while structurally the household that I was raised in was very traditional, my Father worked. My mother didn't even finish her bachelor's and raised four children and until every one of us were out of the house, had never had a job, um, and made uh, actually being a mom of four a a full-time job and more. Um, And so on the outside looking in, we were sort of a traditional makeup. But um, when I think about the dynamics in the household and the kind of stories that passed down, uh, we were not at all conventional I am a first-generation American. Both, of my, um, both sets of my grandparents were uh, refugees from the Nazis. Um, they, uh, my father was born in Vienna, and his family escaped in uh, 39 for the U.S. My mother's family was from Frankfurt, Germany, had left initially for Spain, and civil war broke out in Spain in 1936, and then they fortuitously were able to make their way to South Africa, where she was raised. And uh, my parents eventually found each other in New York, and even though there's a big difference between the cultural backdrop of someone growing up as a Viennese Jew versus a South African Jew. The reality is that it was a very much of a sort of refugee or, or immigrant Jewish uh, mindset. And, um, and the reason I bring all of this up is while I have not um, practiced or adhered to a lot of traditional values even to this day – um the thread of what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be in a line of 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 women who really had to fend for the family under very um, trying circumstances. I mean, I sort of feel that that has prepared me very well and I guess less dramatic terms for some of the trying circumstances I've had corporately or I've had um, you know socially and uh, and so though the, the influences of both grandmothers, of my mother, of my sister, and the kind of um, take-charge attitude is just something that is very innate for me. And uh, so when I, I, it, it's not a mentoring moment, but it's certainly mentoring memories. And so do you look at it
1: as – because I had a strong mom – That and it really appeared really came to focus for me with my how strong my mom is when my dad died, because my mom was in her late 70s at the time. She's she'll be 90 in two months and she was always the stay-at-home mom, right? She was the mom. And then she took charge. When my dad died, she was in charge of everything. She was in charge of her moves. She, and she wasn't in her 60s. I mean, she was almost 80 years old. And, but she just took charge of life. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't the victim. It was like, I've got this under control. And that's when it hit me where some of me really does come from, that, mm-hmm. that woman who is really strong. And so growing up all along... I had that. I just didn't see right. it growing up. It wasn't until I right. got older.
2: Well, I saw it in my case. Even though The only thing my mother did not have um, complete command over was finances because she never earned. Um, and so in that respect, she was utterly uh, dependent on my father and on um, sort of the, the, the stability of, of, of his um, career. If I take that particular, and it's a big one, but if I take that particular facet out of their marriage and our family life, she was in charge of everything. Um, And in fact, to this day, and we we laugh about it because my father's in his late 80s and my mother is um, now approaching 80, she's still very much in charge. And I will call sometimes just to check in and I'll invite them over for dinner. And my father says, well, wait, I have to check with Barbara. So uh, it's the little things and also many of the big things where her dominance came through um, in, um, and, and I'd say pretty, pretty consistently.
1: And that takes me to a question I've been wanting to ask you and for no reason other than we always, we always have so many things to talk about that I haven't asked in the past is how did you get that job, the the great jobs that you have had? And then that job being chairman of LVMH North America, was it something you did something about you? If you're giving advice to someone and saying,
2: not that they have to be you, but here's what got me. Here are those points. Mm-hmm. So um, the first thing is I didn't get the job. The job, um, and, and I don't mean this um, immodestly, but it, it got me. Um, I have I love never, that. That's a great
1: tweet. I didn't get the job. The job got me.
2: And I, tw- I don't look at any job, and certainly not a corporate job, with any admiration or worship. Um, I have always been somewhat of an, a reluctant hiree. Um, obviously I need to work and if I'm going to work, it ought to be as interesting and as sort of dynamic a place. And obviously if it's, if I'm going to be in any place, I ought to be as far along in that place as I possibly can. Yeah. But but i've never felt that the job was really who uh, or how i wanted to be defined and i've struggled with that a lot because the more senior i've gotten the more people want to define me by my business card the more impressive the business card the more that that leads as opposed to nobody ever puts on a bio never starts the the bio with you know she is a mom of two she's a great friend she's you know, that maybe, maybe they'll end with one line at the very end for all those people who, you know, never get to the, the last line. And so I, I struggle with that because the things I take pride in in myself um, mostly are very much, you know, who I am and a strength of character and a joyfulness and all the things that had nothing to do or if they had anything to do with my getting the job, they certainly wouldn't be credited overtly. Um, but to answer your question more pragmatically – I had been in and around the luxury industry for many years. One thing that was very important to me, um, I'd say earlier in my career, is that I, if I was going to be in the world of business, and I, you know, it was a part of me that really would have probably been happier in the world of of creativity or writing or, or media, but I found myself for all sorts of reasons in this world of big business. And if I was going to be in the world of big business, it was very important to me to be working for a company that made products or offered services that I genuinely enjoy. Um, I have quite a few friends who, um, who are driven by other components of working for big companies. Um, they're challenged in different ways. They get satisfaction in different ways, but for me, the association with in my case, the world of artistry and beauty and style and luxury was something that was motivating in and of itself. Um, So... Having said that, I approached that world from many different angles. I was an investor for a period of time. I was a partner at the Carlyle Group but very much focused on luxury goods and other areas of consumer packaging um, and consumer brands. I, uh, Prior to that, was in the cosmetics industry, working in uh, strategy and new business development. I kind of approached it. I didn't really care what the function was. I cared more about the culture that I was working in and the kind of – people and, and ideas that I was surrounded with. What I love about the world of luxury and fashion and, and and aspirational goods is that it is very much built by built on creativity. And I myself maybe as a frustrated creative, at least if I can't be doing the creative work to be associated with it is is very exciting. So it was with that mindset and married with a lot of things I did in the world of business and the fact that I, did it from so many different angles. I never just sort of stayed in the marketing track or stayed in the strategy track. I was willing to sort of take chances and shift around. Um, that I think made me of interest to LVMH when they were looking to fill what was at the time a very amorphous role. Um, they had never had... a um, a regional head in North America, or if they had, it had been more ambassadorial. And they were looking as a French company with a very strong European presence to create more of a power structure here in North America. And uh, I think the fact that I uh, had experience in the industry, the fact that I was uh, flexible as to what and how I could do the things, the fact that I'd worked cross-market for a global company like LVMH, all of those played in well to the creation of this new role. I think one of the many things you just said are important. And one thing
1: that I think, especially for young people to recognize is getting that experience across many different fields, right? That interest you. Mm-hmm. I'm not just saying plug yourself into right. something that doesn't interest you, right. but being able to say, I'll do that. Right. Even if it's not in your main job description, I'll try that. And I, I, I speak for myself as well. I did that a lot. as Even when I was at USA Today, we didn't have an event planning department. And we were a sponsor of Major League Baseball. So we needed to throw events. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was I didn't really raise my hand. But when they said, who can do this? I was like, well, I can do it because I used to be in the hotel business. It doesn't make me an event planner, but I could, I knew kind of both right. sides of it. And so I did that. And I think it showed people that I could take a project and lead it outside of my sales arena, right. where other people... I, had been working with, they would have signs up on their desk. that would say like $5,000. That's the commission I'm going to make today, right? That sales mentality of I put my goal up, I see it, I will work towards it. And when I would say, I'm working on this event, some of my peers would say, but you're not going to get paid extra for that. And I would be like, well, who's going to do it? Mm -hmm. I mean, we need to do this as a company, we need to do this. And I still need to make my goals. I got that. No one's saying you don't need to make your sales goals, but it'll all work out somehow. Mm. And I always had that mentality of somehow this will all pay off. And I didn't do it with the intent. I didn't say, if I do this, maybe one day they'll make me vice president. Never. And I never, ever had that thought ever. It was kind of the job needs to get done. It sounds interesting. This could be fun.
2: I'll do it. Well, I I agree. I think that that is a secret sauce. Um, I think people um, are um, very short term minded when they say, well, what's the incentive? Incentives come back in all sorts of ways. And they shouldn't be that pointed. If they are, then this is just a series of transactions. And I don't personally choose to lead my life or my career as a series of transactions. I don't I don't approach relationships that way. And by the way, jobs and careers are also a series of relationships. Right. So, uh, and the other point I would make just to expound on what you're saying is the importance of just taking chances without the thought of what something is leading to. We just don't know. Um, We know even less now than we did when you and I were coming up the ranks. Uh, the world is moving very quickly and in um, very unpredictable directions. And I think for anyone who's trying to control outcomes, they're probably setting themselves up. So if you can live with the idea, probably the reality, that there's going to be a lot of surprises, and there always have been, um, and the best decisions you can make are the ones that feel right, um, not just for the here and now, but right for who you are and what la- values you live by, I, th- I think that the uh, pathway will, will lead itself. Um, and uh, so I, I, anyway, I, I think you and I share that in common, that willingness to to do things simply because it's an adventure, uh, because w- w- the upside of getting it right is much more exciting than the downside of failing. Um, and by the way, even the downside of failing is not really a failure. Oh, for sure. You know, I was
1: thinking a couple of weeks ago I heard – Michelle Obama being interviewed, and I think it was it was Oprah's interview. It was the last mm-hmm. Oprah of Michelle Obama interview. And she said that she fell asleep the night of the election. She, Michelle Obama, fell asleep. She didn't know who won, actually won until the next morning, that she didn't stay awake for the entire. She kind of knew before she went to bed, but she fell asleep. And I thought, I'm going to remember this forever because I also fell asleep. But I wasn't telling anyone, and I didn't lie and say I didn't fall asleep. I just didn't bring that into my conversation. It would be like, I can't, you know, can you believe what happened, all of the shock. But I didn't say, oh, I fell asleep and woke up the next morning. And my point in that is, I think it's just being genuine, right? Mm -hmm. And it's okay to say, Mm -hmm. I fell asleep. Yeah. And I woke up, if you're, Michelle, if you're Michelle Obama and you can fall asleep, we can all fall asleep is my analogy. So I, I've been really working on that over the years to say, just be who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I have a sense you've had that for a while. Whenever we talk, you have this sense of calm, mm-hmm. like you're very calm and you're
2: about being who you are. Um, well, so I've, I've heard that feedback before. Um, It's not a a conscious push to be calm, Um, but I I guess I do take comfort in the fact that the the truth is very liberating. It takes a lot less energy for me, and probably for most people, to be truthful than to try to position, at best position, and at worst to be deceitful. Um, And the truth has led me in in good and interesting directions. Um, And it's certainly um, been enriching with with friendships and, and relationships. And is there something that comes to mind when you're
1: saying that, that the truth has led you in good directions, like something that you.
2: You know, I've um, I've left jobs. So in the career context, I've left jobs that um, if I were being um, strategic were bad decisions, but they were and I've left them with full transparency um, that this is not where I need to be right now for what's important and how I have to spend whatever time I have. And um, so I think of that truth as having, like, it, again, it, ha- it have served me very well because there's something incredibly empowering about feeling that you're not accountable to any story, that you're just really accountable to a set of, of commitments and values and people that you care for. And, and so I, that would be one, one of right. several examples.
1: And I think it's freeing in that... There's so much energy that's wasted when you're concocting stories or concocting Mm -hmm. your life, right? My husband and I talk about this all the time that... There are no secrets between us. So if he goes on my computer, I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, my God. Like the other day we were working on, he was updating some of my apps on my phone. I don't sit there and think, oh, my God, he's in my phone. Mm-hmm. Will he find something? And I just am like, oh, that's great. I'm happy he's doing it. Mm-hmm. There's not that sense of I have to cover up something. Right. Um, and, and I think that's in work and that's in all of those things. The older I'm getting, the more freeing that is mm-hmm. that – when you're, an, when you're not doing anything wrong, when you're doing everything morally right, there are no secrets, whether it's in a business relationship, whether it's in a personal relationship. And life just becomes a whole lot easier. I mean, mm-hmm. it just becomes a whole lot easier. And you enjoy it more, not just easier. I think,
2: and I think some of it is also redefining those sources of shame. So you described a few minutes ago, the fact that on some level, you were embarrassed to have fallen asleep. Um, And then, you know, after you thought about it, and maybe after Michelle Obama gave you permission, you were like, why would I be embarrassed? There was nothing wrong with that. By the way, I fell asleep and I woke up and I was shocked. um, Because by the time I was dozing off. I thought it was a foregone conclusion. So right. I didn't think there was any re- eventful reason to be up that night. It's almost more surprising that anyone would stay up. Right. It's <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's right. also looking back and saying,
1: what why did I have to hide about that one? Right. There's nothing important about it, right? So it's like, what was it about? That's, what I, that's why when it hit me when she said that, I thought, why am I not like outwardly saying I fell asleep? Right. <laughs> I wasn't lying about it, but I wasn't actually telling. So now we all know I fell asleep and woke up and found out. And, and even better, Pauline fell asleep. Too. Before we And I only I woke up because I heard the grumbling around on. the house <laughs> while the, the latest tallies were coming in. Yeah, it was uh, a little bit explosive. I think another one of the things you just said, um, I had lunch with a woman who is approaching 60, and she's always been with big brands. And she said when she left the big brand, she lost her identity. Mm. And that made me think, I had told that story about me. When I left USA Today, even though I've never been about the title, I've always been about what's around the corner, I lost my identity. Did mm-hmm. you feel that at
2: all when you, lo- when you left LVMH? Not at this stage. I felt earlier in my career, I left a partnership role at the Carlisle Group. I was a private equity investor. Uh, I had given way too much of my life over several years, which is what's required of that of that job in that world. Um, and I felt on the one hand, um, this incredible sort of sense of, um, relief when I left that I had my life back cause I really didn't feel I owned my life for that, for the, for those periods of years. However, um, I lost my business card and it was the first time in my life. Um, and I probably was going through the same transition you went when you left USA today. Um, and I remember the first couple of months, I mean, what, what it was really um, that socially, I was not even though I was for a period of time home and picking up the kids from school and doing things that might look like a, another suburban mom without a career in my head, I was still very much this sort of hard charging career woman. And my associations and my um, connections were all very much of that world. And so I would still do things after hours, um, go out to the Aspen Institute to some gala, people would always ask, so what do you do? And the first probably dozen times people said, so what do you do? I would say, well, until recently I, or I used to, and I always felt, and then one day it just, I kind of slapped myself. So I thought, why am I defending and why am I not owning this chapter? I was not even a year into my, um, so so-called sabbatical. So I was at some event and it was um, indistinguishable otherwise from all the others uh sitting next to a man who asked me the classic line so what do you do and I turned to him and I said nothing. And I remember thinking like he he looked at me rather perplexed didn't know if I was joking cuz why would I be there at that fancy table and I just thought I'm just stopping. Period. That's great. Period. That. And uh and I never went back. So this time around I think I was prepared. Right. That's
1: that was really hard for me and it was hard for her and so hard that she went to another major company mm. just so right she could be associated with the brand mm. and so that takes me to I'm done with that with the segment that we do of what are we done with in life mm-hmm. and that is one of the major things I'm done with mm-hmm. is thinking that I need to be with powerful people, with powerful brands, that that it's, it's okay to be with powerful people and powerful brands mm-hmm. if it's what you want to be mm-hmm. doing, if that's where you're finding your pleasure, but that's not my driving force mm-hmm. anymore. Even for guests on the podcast, and I think we've talked about this for with you hosting mm-hmm. um, trendsetters is. Sometimes it's not the powerful people that have some of the best stories, powerful in their job titles, powerful, right? Mm -hmm. It's the people who are really just doing great things or great people Mm -hmm. that have the greatest stories to share. And by focusing in on saying we have to be associated, you know, Mm -hmm. I need a big name on the show, you lose so much greatness. Right. And so that's one of the things I am totally done with is associating power with great, Mm -hmm. that they are... Two two totally separate things.
2: I think the other thing we, on that point that we forget is what makes something exciting, whether it's a conversation or a a product line, it's some element of surprise, of discovery. And, uh, you know, when I have people, as interesting as they may be, who have, you know, very storied uh, reputations, I find basically what they're saying is things we already know. Or you Google them and you can get there very quickly. And so it's just not that interesting, um, even though it was interesting enough to get them a Wikipedia page the first time around. But it's right. been told. That story's been told. And um, so I'm always looking. And I, I I feel the same way in when it comes to style. It's not that I won't wear... Um, a dress that may have a big label on it, but for me to wear it exactly as it may re- be represented in a in an ad campaign, to me would be um, be sort of a mockery. It's not about the brand; it's really about the expression and how you combine things and how you extract a conversation. In your case, such that you can actually get at interesting elements of somebody. And it's hard with people who have you know uh, big uh, big titles and big uh, big reputations. It's hard to get them to share. An angle that hasn't been told yes now what are you done with um so i long ago stopped sort of declaring um these very emphatic statements which i've done in my life so for example when i left carlisle and i uh, was very burnt out uh and i wanted to get back to working with entrepreneurs with um creative individuals and makers i said publicly frequently. I will never go back to a big company. Um, and the reason being, which by the way, the, the reasoning was important, but the conclusion was off. The reason was I felt that it was, um, I thought it was soul killing. I thought that big companies, um, are uh, not only, um, incapable, but even resistant to innovation and change, which are important uh, drivers for me personally. Um, I felt that, that they, um, reduced people to kind of, um, economic assets. And there was something very dehumanizing about that. So for all those reasons, I made this very emphatic statement. Um, now, shortly thereafter, when LVMH came, I thought, you know, and, and I w- had some reluctance to go there, but they gave me a very compelling offer. And I got comfortable with it. And I did exactly what I said I'd never do. LVMH at the time had 120,000 employees around the world, 25,000 here in the US where I had oversight, you know, a $40 billion revenue company. Um, this was a big company, but the way I got comfortable with it for the duration I was there is that it was really a, a big group consisting of a lot of little companies um, and that there were ways for me to break it down such that I felt ownership um, and that I was only going to do it on my terms. So if my terms are not compatible with what the company needed, then I would move on, um, which by the way is sort of ultimately how um, I, I kind of it came, came to an end. What I wanted and where they wanted to go didn't make sense. But for as long as I was there, it was working for me and it was very much a, um, a sort of a mutual, um, I'd say a mutual benefit in terms of the arrangement. So to answer your question, I tend not to say I will never. Right. But I, t- I do say what, I, what is important to me and um, and what, what watch-outs I may have. And
1: one of the other things, you were just saying that I just, I, when you were talking, all the things you are talking about made me think of something else that I'm done with. I'm done with zagging when. I want to zig and I'll Mm -hmm. explain that. So Maureen Henderson is a contributor on Forbes and she did a great post on Christmas day, which is a day you normally don't publish a Most people aren't publishing posts, right? And she said, you know, I'm looking at everybody who's zagging, and I want to zig mm. because that's when you really start to do things differently. Mm. Right. Because zagging is following the herd. Mm-hmm. It's being the sheep. It's But when you zig, mm-hmm. you're taking risks. You're taking challenges. It's a challenge. And you may not succeed. But it's a whole lot more fun to zig than it is to zag right. with everyone else. So that, as you were saying, that made me think that I think you're a zigger versus a zagger. How's that?
2: <laughs> I'm certainly not afraid to zig when everyone's right, right. zagging. Um, I tend to think I'm very circular and very uh, loopy. I, I sort of follow if everyone is going through these sort of Z shapes, I'm sort of making some sort of spiral. You know, hopefully it's moving in the right right direction upward.
0: The best in paranormal talk radio goes beyond the darkness, challenging everything you think you know about the paranormal. Check out new episodes of Beyond the Darkness every Monday on the Jericho Network, on the Podcast One app, or subscribe at iTunes or podcastone.com. Now back to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari.
1: Okay, so I have a question about Aesthetic Intelligence, and that's the class that you're teaching at Harvard Business School. It's Your book is about Aesthetic Intelligence. So we have our IQ, we have our EQ, which is Emotional Intelligence,
2: and now we have Aesthetic Intelligence, known as AQ. So um, the point that Dan Goldman made in the 90s when he first came out with the concept of emotional intelligence intelligence was that IQ was only supportive to a certain or, or conducive to success up to a certain level, after which it was either um, non-additive or in some cases even could be detracting. Somebody was too reliant on their IQ at the expense of their EQ. EQ then was the differentiator. Um, and now we look at this era where even those two together, if you have the right combination, are not enough. We, uh, From a business perspective, we live in a world where we're producing too many Things where we have very few people who are in need, the way they were in every other generation before, in need of food, in need of clothing, in need of um, pillows for their living room. So almost everything we consume as a society is for a better standard of living, um, for a sense of of wonder, um, for entertainment, and. So when I look at companies that will survive, it's when they've gotten um, under the right leadership, which is, I think, um, one that is armed with lots of AQ, uh, where they get away from just sort of producing in this industrial era mindset, which is, can we churn out more widgets for less money, you know, for a bigger marketplace? We are saturated. That doesn't work anymore. And the question is, can we learn or uh, relearn in some cases how to delight people because delight is something that we're not saturated of. And whether it's delight in the form of a, of a wonderful vacation or a great movie or um, a new outfit that brightens your day, this is what moves people um, in the economic world you know, in terms of transaction and, and consumption. Um, and I also look at the world and all the shifts that are going on geopolitically and, and socially. And I sort of say one thing that um, we are probably craving more now than ever – because of all of the you know the the risk factors and the um, uncertainties and the confusions is this sort of sense of beauty and humanity. And you know that is found humanity. we we see it played out by all the next generation. Um, graduates wanting to work in impact businesses, right, and social, social ventures. I mean, that's playing out. So on the humanity side, but what about the side of a humanity that just makes us feel alive? It doesn't make us feel saintly, but makes us feel alive. And, um, and when I look at sectors, by the way, that are growing in the economy, they generally are not companies or, or industries that are selling stuff. They're selling experiences. And experiences are not born of utility, they're born of this sense of delight. So when I talk about aesthetics, I really talk about the ability to um, empathize with that human need and to execute on it in a way that um, you don't have to be an artist, but you know how to, you have, do have to know how to work with very artistic people, because much of the magic of a great aesthetic proposition is the artistry that's built into it.
1: I think this is fabulous, and so HBS didn't have anything like this Nothing. before. Nothing. So it was your
2: idea. My idea. I think it's great. It's great. Um, and it's it's been a lot of fun. I went in like a number of other chapters before, having never taught and um, really questioning whether I had a right to be a professor uh, at that level. But it turned into the most uh, popular elective on campus. I'm going back this spring, so I teach in the spring semester. Um, and uh, and I, if I thought i was I was uh, hitting on something of importance the first time around, which was last spring, this time around, I'm that much more confident.
1: How did you come up with the idea to do it, and why, why HBS?
2: Um, so, you know, it, like a lot of things, it was a bit um, serendipitous, the process. I knew that I, in winding down from LVMH, did not want to take on another business leadership role. I knew that in those management roles that the um, energy is mostly spent on operations, on execution, on people, and not on ideas, and not on bigger thoughts, Um, there is very little energy for a CEO to have big thoughts and to think not just about where a company is going in five years from now, but where the world is going. And I'm a curious person, and I knew that I had – theories, whether they were true or not, about where the world was going. I did not have an outlet um, to share them. And so I said, what can I do to become more of a thought leader and to give myself the freedom where I don't have to ask for permission or where I'm not stepping outside the scope of my work to be able to actually have an opinion or to talk about things that are a little broader? Um, And it seemed to me at the time (laughs) that academia was about as good as it gets. Um, now, obviously, I have a lot more credibility teaching in the business world than I would if I went to the philosophy department, and so that was just a pragmatic uh, move. And then secondly, where I was interested if I was going to be in the business school, which I am, was how can I bring uh, break down some of the – barriers between business and other functions so I opened up um, and it was you know a bit controversial in the beginning but I think an important move and I'll continue with it but I opened up 20% of the seats in my class for non-business graduate students most of whom came from the design school but they came from the Kennedy school and from I had one medical doctor in the class um, and I felt that that integration of business with other ways of thinking and of operating was very, very important for a topic like aesthetics. So the the short answer to your question is um, it started with a conversation. Harvard was um, remarkably receptive, um, and they gave me a chance to fail. And so far, so good. And they give you a chance to succeed,
1: which uh, and, apparently yeah. is
2: happening with everybody signing
1: up for the class.
2: So it's 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 a first step, and it's right. um, it, it, if all goes well, it's you know one of a few things I'd like to be doing in this chapter. But I would like to continue.
1: I, I love the and I do this a lot, as you know, in the podcast. It was like I never. I hardly even listened to podcasts, and it was, will you be a podcast host? And I'm like, sure. It was the first time I moderated a panel. Will you moderate, moderate a panel? Sure. I never moderated a panel, and it's Melinda Gates. It's, And I, I tell that to young women, to women, I mean, even men, women, doesn't matter your age, just jump in. Mm-hmm. As long as you know you can do it, as long as you think you can do it, mm-hmm. right? That you think you've got that skill, that talent, the energy, whatever it takes to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I make the point all the time that if someone asked me to swim the ocean but I can't, I don't know how to swim. So I, I can't do that in a month. So I'd mm-hmm. have to say, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. It's just not in my realm. But most things are in our realm. Yeah, to Most do. things are
2: not that hard. Right.
1: That we can do if fear gets out of our way. Yes. So before we wrap up, I want to hear about talking about experiences. Iceland, you just came back from Iceland. Yeah.
2: Well, speaking, speaking of fear, I mean, this is a fearless people. Um, I've been to Iceland several times. I had never been there in the winter before. And, uh, I've subsequently become obsessed with the show Vikings, um, which is on the History Channel, simply because it's a population that should never have survived. You know, when you think about the elements, uh, in the case of Iceland, it's lava strone, So there's, other than now energy, geothermal energy uh, and fishing, there's really no natural resources to speak of. There's barely any grass. Um, Every, you know, several decades, a big portion of the population has been historically wiped out by some eruption. Um, half of the men who historically went to sea as fishermen would not come back because the um, conditions in the North Atlantic are very violent. And yet it's a people that love to celebrate. And uh, the fireworks that go on on New Year's Eve, which is when we were there, is like nothing I've seen anywhere. And it seems to go on for a full 24 hours. It just doesn't stop. Um, And so what what, what I took from it, um, first of all, is just a a sheer natural beauty that I – don't see almost anywhere anymore, you know, where this is not Disney type. This is the, this is the land. This is the land speaking to us. And then secondly, it's a culture that have just developed, um, great sort of mechanisms for not just surviving, but for enjoying life and for creating in their own way. So we were there, I was there with my two kids, my husband. Um, it, uh, it was a very full week. Uh, I highly recommend it, although it's becoming popular now. It wasn't a few years ago. Uh, and it was an adventure. It was an adventure for me um, and a reminder about, you know, this, uh, this sort of notion of of getting over fear and, and, and also learning to see beauty and joy sort of despite those kind of challenges, natural and otherwise. And do you have other favorite places you've been to? I a few months ago was in Israel, and I hadn't been there in um, about 20 years. Um, and there, I just, I'm not a religious person, but it is a holy ground. Right. You know, I go there and I feel it. Um, it probably has to do with some sort of the mineral combination. You know, there's probably something actually very uh, explainable going on. Um, but nonetheless, I feel it when I'm there, um, and I love it. And I love it also for the the idea behind Israel, the idea that in a city like Jerusalem, you could have that many cultures in such close proximity, and for all the strife. It's actually remarkably stable, actually, when you think about what it, you know, in some ways relative to the, 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 what, what, what could have been with that kind of a, a dynamic. Um, I, I love Japan. When I think of aesthetics, um, I think it is um, the most advanced in the world. Uh, the, their sense of um, harmony and working with nature in a way that, that feels um, organic and at the same time um, modern i always learn from from the japanese and i uh, i i i wish we could import more of what they do so well and that would be um sense of um living with, with care and quality. I think we, America has become very much, um, and, and I use America as a extreme uh, symbol here, but a fast food nation in everything we do. The way we buy fashion, is uh, it's, it's fast fashion. You know, the way we entertain ourselves, it's all very, very fast, very accessible. Um, but I'd say we haven't put enough of a premium in, um, in quality and lastingness in culture And so there's a a mindfulness that the Japanese do, maybe because it's, um, you know, it's a very concentrated country. It's they're very um, uh, homogenous as well. So there's a sense of community that, you know, is and and, and they don't have the vastness that Americans have. But for all those reasons, and we, of course, on the forefront of the industrial development. So we still are thinking scale sometimes over, I think, depth. What about Paris? Um, yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with Paris. Really? Um, I'm not, I not. I love Paris, it's but I've not
1: spent the time that you've yeah. probably spent in Paris. I'm just there on vacation. I mean, maybe I, part
2: of the problem for me is I, uh, for so long, was associating it uh, also with work. Right,
1: That's like, mine is just all the beauty <laughs> yeah. of
2: Paris. But the first time I went to Paris, which was probably in 1982... Um, it was one of the first times I ever left the country. To me, it, and and of course, it was still uh, had its its own currency, and it was very exotic. Um, and I'd go into a store, and I'd feel like I saw things that, you know, were were so um, unfamiliar that it was exciting. Now I go, and as someone who lives in New York, and I find, with the exception of the architecture. Because uh, the fact that there's no skyscrapers, like the, the, the actually what I see within it, how people live, it's a little too familiar for me.
1: I agree. I agree with that. I think the beauty of it, when when you're there and you're walking at nighttime, oh, yes. it's just gorgeous. Right? It's, I mean, the history, it's of magical. It. Yes,
2: right. The history it, of it, and I feel that way about Rome as well. Yes. Um which is one of my favorites in Europe. And do you like London? You know, it's it's a dynamic place, but again, it's familiar. Right. It's a little I too agree. familiar, and maybe that just speaks to my quest for the unfamiliar for the discovery.
1: That's my thing this year. I want to go to places that I haven't gone before to to explore. There's a part of me that likes going back to the places that I love because I want to get deeper into Mm -hmm. them. It's like, okay, I saw that. Now I really want to do that next level. Right. But now I'm kind of, I'm having this itch. I don't, I can't even explain it other than say it's an itch that I want to go see places I haven't seen yeah. before. And then I want some of the familiar, right? I want to be able to have that feeling of, I know where the restaurants are. I know where I'm going. I know oh, yeah. all of this. But I want
2: that. I mean the, the, the incredible thing is you don't have to go that far from home uh, and go to Brooklyn you certainly can go to Brooklyn <laughs> although that's becoming a, decent, a, right. a, a bigger version right. of Manhattan but I, I mean I've spent time in the southeast in places like Savannah and New Orleans and um, you know I think we we tend to look outward, but the um, I think the, the, the one of the realizations from this last election is that this nation is a lot more complicated than we New Yorkers are necessarily in touch with, and um, and, and understanding going to Texas and understanding the people and and how they live, not just as an experimental, but also just um, so cultural it's uh, interesting i mean you know the cuisine there's there's a new book out um it was just reviewed in the new york times uh book review section and it was it's basically about how geography is destiny and they talked about in this case the geography of america and how that kind of led to america's dominance in the industrial revolution but i also think you know it's very interesting to go places and to understand how the so- the, the social and cultural climate was born out of a particular situation um, who came there, what skills they had, and what natural resources made it possible, whether it's Minnesota or Detroit or, you know, Chicago. The learnings take you into the future. It, very
1: they, much so. They really do. Very so much I so. think a lot of times I, I know, like, when I talk to a lot of young women, they're like, oh, history. And I have to say, I'm not a big – history was never my strong suit. But playing into the arts, mm-hmm. which is my strong suit, history mm-hmm. became – a Mm. part of my strong suit because Mm -hmm. it it came the opposite way as I was learning I I went to school for fashion design Mm -hmm. so as you're learning fashion design you're learning history Mm -hmm. because it all plays in absolutely um so here's the type of question do you ever want to be a nomad no
2: no No. (laughs) I uh when you were younger More so, right? More so, and in fact, um, I think my wonder list was probably highest when I was in college, and I spent two semesters abroad, uh, one in Germany and one in uh, Scotland, Edinburgh. Um, I I love to travel under the right circumstances, um, but I also I love my home, Um, and you know now that I'm doing very thought intensive work, whether it's the book project, preparing for class. even, um, you know, thinking about design in new ways, I have to go more in, right. And, uh, the distraction of travel I find is, um, is something that is not necessarily conducive to the work that I want to do at this stage. So I just
1: love how true you are to yourself. I love it. It's thank you. I want it to be contagious. And, oh. and I, truly, as I'm getting older, those are the things I'm really focusing on. It's being true to myself and I wish, and I had a great life, so I can't say I wish, but, it probably would have been beneficial to me had I been more true to myself versus taking the jobs mm. that other people wanted me to take or that looked good on paper and yeah. just being true to myself. So life's long. Yeah, life is short, but life is long. So I've got a lot of years to be Absolutely. able to apply all of that.
2: Absolutely, And you, and, you keep growing. We right, all
1: do. Right. So where can we find you?
2: Well, so I, um, I mean, most importantly, I have the weekly show on SiriusXM, uh, which, uh, if, for those who are not subscribers, you can actually get through a Wharton website. You should just Google um, my name, Pauline Brown. Trendsetters, Sirius XM, and there'll be a link. You can hear past programs. And if you are a subscriber, uh, the show is aired every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern time with a few repeats throughout the week. So that is one thing. And uh, hopefully the book uh, will be something I can talk more about in the next few months. I just got to put more pen to paper. Um, and, uh, and I hope people will find me there as well. And we can go to Harvard Business School. You certainly certainly can do that? And I, I welcome guests now and then. Speaking of which, we'll take this conversation, but
1: I'm going to be a guest lecturer at Harvard at HBS. Oh, good. And they said, why don't you bring someone with you? And I was like, I know a I'm person there. I want to ask. Want I'm going to ask Pauline Brown. This would be fun to do together. So that's another conversation. Okay.
2: Well, we'll, we'll keep your, your right, right, listeners right, abreast right. of that. So
1: thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you thank so much. You so I'm much. very inspired by you. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so inspired by you. Thanks a million for joining Pauline Brown and me today. She is so smart. So I told you she was cool. She is so cool, so smart. And to make sure you're getting mentoring moments the moment it's live, which is every Wednesday, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, rate and review. It's really easy. It takes like less than a minute. And check out my show notes on Forbes.com. I'd love, love, love to hear your thoughts about, are you a Viking? Are you someone who can survive big challenges and celebrate with joy? Are you getting the experience you need to come alive and grow in unexpected ways? And do you zig, zag, or spiral? Are you following the herd or are you creating your own path? You can find me. It's easy. I'm on Twitter, at Denise for And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter.
0: download new episodes of mentoring moments every wednesday at podcastone.com forbes.com the podcast one app or you can subscribe at itunes hey it's layla from layla Ali lifestyle on podcast one now as an undefeated boxing champion turned fitness and wellness expert I'm going to be bringing you the information that you want to hear. Be a champion in every area of your life. You can download new episodes
2: of Layla Ali Lifestyle every Thursday at podcastone.com or subscribe at iTunes. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him.
0: The United
1: States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following following the rule of law is a serious business.
2: He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him.
1: There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States... Uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping
0: of my staff.
2: Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.